0: Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Britton Brooks, who is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Languages and Cultures at Kyushu University. Very nice to speak to you today, Britton. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you.
0: So, the paper that we're going to be speaking about is in a field that I don't have much background in, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe our listeners don't have that much background in either the paper that we're talking about is biophonic soundscapes in the vitae of saint Guthlack. so in a kind of 101 sense of the uh of the field could you give us a background to what this field is is all about and what our listeners uh, should uh know about before we start discussing the contents of the paper
1: um sure Uh, So my field in particular is, generally speaking, early medieval uh, English literature, that which was produced in um, Old English and Anglo-Latin. And uh, the majority of my work actually looks at prose texts, uh, but also includes a bit of poetry. um, And I try to bring that together with my um, sort of desire to look at a kind of environmental um, aspect of literary texts, looking at kind of ecological reading, I suppose, um, if you like. And um, I suppose what's really um, important to note is that um, these the texts we have written in Old English and from this period in Latin are very few. <laughs> There's not that many. Um, and the majority of them, of course, were written down essentially by Christian monks or clergy, or people trained usually to write in Latin <clears throat> through the church. And so that's one thing to keep in mind that the world the worldview that influences how these things are written down uh, the word choice is heavily indebted to essentially christian tradition this includes uh, extremely importantly the book of psalms which essentially was recited so much uh, daily (laughs) uh, by members of religious communities in this period that it kind of forms the kind of basic framework of reference so very often uh, words that seem a bit odd or sort of seeming little kind of references are just really the fact that everybody knows the Psalms. It's the kind of thing that, you know, everyone in the period knew. And so if you just sort of say, oh, yeah, of course, that's Psalm 25 verse 4. Um, it's a kind of thing that that is a bit harder for us to wrap our heads around because it doesn't form the same level of kind of a substrate of our lives as it once uh, did. Um, so again, this is really just uh, things written in Old English and Anglo-Latin by uh, what I'm going to call the, the early medie- uh, medieval English peoples, because uh, there were several groups, and they weren't really monolithic in the way that we used to think about them. Um, and I'm looking at the ways in which they wrote about humanity's relationship to the unbelievably ill-defined uh, non-human world, those things we colloquially refer to as nature or the environment or various other equally impossible to define terms.
0: Well, it, you you bring up uh, uh, my my favourite book of the Bible, of course, the the book of uh, Psalms. Uh, it's eminently quotable, uh, and also the uh, second time that it's come up in the podcast. What is your work specifically focused on? So it, it it is it's the soundscape of the poetry that's being produced at this time, and so you bring up the idea that there is a, a shared. Uh, soundscape that everyone understood the book of psalms and were able to to quote uh, it your work is both linguistic and of course historical we're talking about works that were produced 1300 years ago how do you kind of uh, kind of balance those two in your analysis of the text
1: Oh, it's a good question. Um, and it, it really depends on, on on what we have left from each text, I suppose. Um, and I, I mean, I, I suppose what I really want to say is that to me, they're always intertwined. You can't really look at one without the other. I mean, language itself is always contextual, historically, physically even. Um, and that's one of the things I'm interested in is the ways in which the physical environment affects that kind of linguistic practice. But of course, the physical environment is historically contextual. so. Um, I mean, one thing that uh, I have to deal with a lot is um, trying to figure out, for example, what animals would be ubiquitous in, for example, East Anglia in like the eighth and ninth centuries, Uh, because it's not necessarily the same animals that are potentially around there today. Um, And so even things like that, looking at how uh, the kind of, again, I'm interested in, in the physical soundscape. So sounds produced primarily by animals, which is biophony. Um, and sounds produced by uh, sort of natural elements like wind and, and rain and all that stuff, um, which is called geophony, and um, both those things again are, are highly contextual, again physically and historically, um, because, uh, for example, there are um, uh, there uh, even in Japan where, where I now live, uh, we have, for example. Um, Uh, I don't really exactly know which bird because I know nothing about this, but I had a friend who once told me uh, that essentially there's, uh, in poetry, specific kinds of birds that are referred to in places like Kyoto that now don't live there anymore because of the way the temperature has changed since the poetry was written. So there's this kind of feedback, loop, of course. So you have to look at the the, the physical historical context, the ways in which uh, things like the um, the dominant... uh, philosophical traditions and textual traditions of that era are influencing how people are writing about and also interacting with the the elements outside of the human world, essentially. Um, But also that writing, of course, and feeds back into it and kind of goes around like this, which feeds back into the language used, which again is both highly traditional. And and I suppose, um, sorry, one thing I should have mentioned in in the first question is unlike now, Um, in which if I copy and paste someone's uh, words, I get fined or thrown in jail. That was actually really the thing to do in the medieval period. In fact, um, in Saints' Lives, which is the subject of um, this paper, uh, Saints' Lives are incredibly full of this stuff. (laughs) Essentially, um, the way you show your new saint is a saint is because they do the exact same thing some other famous saint really did. very often this involves quite literally copying and pasting entire passages and just changing you know instead of saying Egypt now says England (laughs) basically there was no England but that's the basic idea they are lifting these things and reusing them and so um, there's also that that you have moments where um, you have to deal with someone taking essentially a paragraph and altering a few things uh, in a completely different context hundreds of years later um and so again it's all this kind of back and forth between the language and 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 the historical context if that makes sense
0: <laughs> well when you do any kind of study of uh catholic tradition bible studies what was decided through a, a a series of synods of what should be in the bible or not be in the bible uh, a lot of this um kind of copy and pasting kind of comes up which is added that this this book should be here this book shouldn't be here and the reason that the book shouldn't be there is basically it is exactly the same it's just lifted from something else I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, I am very uh, interested in the natural world and I, you know, grow vegetables and I have my own space for doing this in my house. But I was uh, interested in the early passage in your paper that from Stanton, spoken about the uh, vortex uh, Animantium, voices of living things. Mm -hmm. And just the idea that uh, if if you have any kind of comment on this, that we don't really know, uh, given the the prevalence of factory farming, people would be keeping animals for their own consumption and not having uh, large groups of them as it were. We don't really know what the soundscape of uh, a farm 1000 years ago might sound like. We don't know what chickens a thousand years ago might sound like. Uh, We don't know what pigs might sound like a thousand years ago. And we certainly don't know how these languages would sound as well. So uh, again, as a primer to, to people, how much did this kind of analysis of the historical linguistic aspect kind of play into the way that you analyzed the work?
1: Um, it's, it's an important point, and um, I, I do appreciate his, uh, his name is uh, Robert Stanton, and he's mm-hmm. he's, he's uh, talking about how um, uh, we, of course, we can't really know exactly what a pig sounded like 900 years ago. Um, ju- and he says, just like we can't necessarily under- understand how, it, it, you know, the o- other animals do the same thing. And that is very true. Um, but th- there are several things we can do, um, for example. So we are fairly certain, there's a fair amount of evidence that um, birds in general, um, a naming of birds, in many languages is onomatopoeic. People name them after how they sound, because for a lot of times you just don't see the thing, right? you just hear the sound somewhere in the trees. And so we can look at, for example, names of uh, birds in Old English that are onomatopoeic. And um, uh, one that resonates, of course, here in Japan is the crow, which I had no idea there were so many giant black birds flying around Japan, uh, but they're everywhere and terrifying. Um, I feel like Odin's watching me all the time, which is <laughs> um, But so, for example, I'm, I'm trying to find. Uh, uh, so in um, in uh, Latin, there's this uh, crocitus, which basically just means the sound a crow makes. It's kind of an name and sound when they talk about the the thing the the terms that the way it speaks it's a crack krake, which also is a kind of double onomatopoeic go- thing going on here at least for birds while of course we we can't necessarily say that they they've said something that you know is an equivalent to a modern crow's crowing the the amount of fairly recognizable onomatopoeic sounds and sound names uh, i i think you can use those to say that while there may have been somewhat change there's a lot a great deal of continuity um, and, and as much as I, I appreciate stanton's point i think in some ways it exaggerates a, a level of, of change uh, you know while, while we're fairly certain for example that um uh humpback whales for example have a kind of sonic culture they they have songs that shift and change and that you, scientists actually tracked how essentially a song that starts sort of down south will kind of migrate across populations north Um, Perhaps, again, the the direction's wrong. Uh, But the point stands that we know that their songs change quite quickly, quite often. Uh, We know, for example, uh, other aquatic mammals, essentially like dolphins, have sort of names, clicks they call themselves, essentially, that are recognizable. Um, And birds, of course, are are highly sonorous, and and there is evidence, of course, of changing bird songs, including things uh, uh, from anthropogenic influence. So, for example, birds in cities will uh will sort of change uh the 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 how the pitch and the volume um to be heard, just like whales actually now will sing louder and in different registers, I think, at least they're different louder to try and overcome the kind of noise of shipping traffic in the ocean. Um all that to say that I, I think um they're closer than we think they are. And w- what I what I think we can definitely do as I try to do in my paper is um is is look at how um, these sounds are rendered in literature and what they mean to the people who are using them. Um, and so, for example, uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, crows in here because they're very important in uh, a lot of uh, traditions because they 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 are problematic bird essentially. I mean, to be fair, they are terrifying, black and scary looking, and um, super
0: are, intelligent as well.
1: Absolutely genius. <laughs> Makes it even worse, because in Christian tradition, at least in the medieval period, they're problematic. they're, they're sort of emblematic of a number of things. They're sometimes symbolic of of, of sin, of the weight of the world. Um, there's a a, a bit um, in a story about uh, Noah where you know he lets off uh, the the crow and it doesn't come back, and he lets off the dove and it comes back um, at the end of the whole uh, you know ark floating in the ocean thing. This is interpreted by many uh, by many um, sort of exegetes, uh, people commenting on the Bible as a number in a number of ways, one of which is it symbolizes, uh, I, I think if I remember correctly, um, sort of people being um, sort of consumed by the world and and not returning and all that stuff. And so th- there is this kind of give and take here, I suppose. I think I've gone off on a tangent about crows. I can't get them out of my mind now, uh, but back to your original question. I, I really think it's, um, as much as it has been changed, I think you, you can carry with careful analysis, you can discover, a little bit of how they may have sort of sounded, but definitely a lot about how people thought they sounded in those periods and rendered that both onomatopoeically, but also uh, meaningfully in in their literary um, production
0: uh, i 'm guessing you 're referencing the biblical flood there yes but that brings me to the uh, question that I had about your analysis in relation to the contents of the paper, we 'll we'll get into. It that but one of the questions that i had for you was um the poem that you reference is is kind of is is rich with animistic content that is somewhat incongruous with um the the biblical teaching of christianity i'd i'd be interested to know how you analyzed it from uh, a religious standpoint, whether it was from uh, a Christian uh, analysis or from uh, a, a more uh, open kind of uh, idea basis.
1: Yeah, I was curious about, uh, about that uh, question. Um, I, which text do you mean? So the, the, the thing looks at essentially um, uh, three, uh, well, four different texts, two prose mm-hmm. texts, Latin Life and the Old English Life, and then two poems, Good like mm-hmm. A and Good B. Um, so I wasn't sure which one, which one do you mean?
0: <laughs> because you are building, you're talking about the the soundscape that it's mainly uh, in relation to the animal uh, sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wondered if there was an element of kind of pre-medieval animism within it, given the fact that at the time, most people were, you know, un- as as you would say, unlettered, they couldn't read the biblical texts and so a lot of the time as you say people would approach their understanding of the world through what they were told about it by their local uh, preacher their local vicar like to what extent uh religion or understanding of religion at the time played into your uh analysis of the text
1: uh, So, i a couple of things the, the first thing i say is um uh, disentangling the kind of potentially pre-Christian from the Christian in Old English literature, especially this genre, uh, saints' lives, is extremely perilous. <laughs> I would say, um, in that, unlike, for example, um, in Old Norse literature, where we have you know references to Thor and and Odin and uh, and um, all those kind of and Freya and all these things running around everywhere, even in the kind of overtly Christian literature, where we're talking about a saint. And the references to the ocean are talking about Agia or whatever the the North Sea God. In Old English, we have basically none of that. Um, it, it's sort of for a variety of historical reasons, it just isn't there. Um, and in hagiography, the, the saints' lives, as I mentioned before, they are some of the most um, sort of conventional uh, text in the period. In that, essentially, everyone follows one four. Um, They're all written. The majority of them are written essentially for for other people in the church. They're not written for wide dispersal, though pieces of them, especially this guy named Alfred, uh, his batch of uh, saints lives were used in the liturgical calendar. So when it was so-and-so's feast day, they'd read a portion of whatever saints life this is. that said, they were uh, they were one of the most popular genre because they're really exciting. You have these powerful saints like taking down demons and stuff. My favorite one is when one of the saints goes and takes on the Loch Ness monster. I'm not kidding. He actually goes to Loch. Well, it says Loch Ness, and he fights some kind of monster. Um, so they're really exciting, right? That they're kind of like the dime store fiction of the day, um, but they are written from a very specific. Position and for a very specific purpose. They're written to elevate a saint, which usually is tied into a specific site or sites, which they then hope people will come to and of course donate money to, but also, you know, uh, kind of venerate in a variety of ways. And so all this kind of pressure uh, means that in general, uh, if we're looking for sort of, if you can somehow disentangle non-Christian things, um, I would say it would be not impossible, but quite perilous because you, of the ways in which the text is done. Um, that said, um, I mean, that connects also to the ways in which um, uh, Christianity was uh, sort of brought through the medieval period in this area, in that um, there uh, we have evidence, for example, of of uh, missives from 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 Rome saying things like, you know, don't don't go destroy the pagan temple, just just convert it, just like go there and like you mm-hmm. know like push down the the like you know idol thingy and stick across there, and it'll be all good, mm-hmm. right? And so this kind of process as well means that a lot of those details are, are kind of subsumed in this kind of soup. Uh, so as far as extricating it, I, I didn't really do too much of that, mainly because of what these texts are. Um there are other texts that you could maybe do that a bit more better in old English, but it is really quite difficult. Um so for these texts, I would say what I was what I'm looking at more is the ways in which uh, Christian theology and tradition um are informing the ways in which they are depicting people's, particularly these saints, relationship with the 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 nature, non-human world environment thing.
0: Well, as you say, I mean I, most of these texts were uh, well, these texts were in, intended to basically support the beatification of people who the the Catholic Church. They were there, as you say, kind of like uh, they're the Marvel comics of their day. They wanted to uh, improve the the image, and therefore, when someone was elevated to this status, that it was uh, supported by the by the see, um, by the group of the the congregation as it were in your estimation how important was the link between the people being elevated and the natural world was this something that was used to connect to as as i said before people who they couldn't read the bible they only understood it through uh the oral tradition do you think this is something that was important to link it to their everyday lives to make it more appealing to them?
1: Um, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, one thing that this, the saints' lives do, and one of the reasons why a lot of my research is focused on the saints' lives, is that a lot of other uh, literature written in Old English and Anglo-Latin is kind of non-place specific, right? You, you have like, you know, a story that exists somewhere. You know, e- even the 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 most sort of the the uh, the well-known uh, sort of, I suppose, epic, but not really, uh, Beowulf that everyone knows uh, from from Old English is not set in England at all, and, and it actually is set in, an, in a sort of real place that you can identify. But other than that, you're left with kind of these not, these these places that don't exist, or often references to uh, you know Jerusalem and things that people would never have actually seen, including the people writing these stories. They've never been there, most of them. Um, but saints, by virtue of what they are, which is essentially this guy lived in this place, um, or this woman, but uh, lived in this place, and then, you know, they did something amazing, and then they were considered to be, you know, uh, holy in some way or form, and eventually a saint's cult develops, usually in connection with some kind of established uh, community, uh, ecclesial community of some kind, Um, and then usually another one gets set up, close to where this thing happens and then you have um, this has to do with the way saints relics work um, and reliquary in general so in this period uh, you could essentially you go to a saint shrine for example let's let's do saint cuthbert this is a good example of uh, he's possibly the most famous uh, medieval saint Um, and you go to where uh, he died and in the medieval period you could essentially um, you know uh, uh, there was a bit where after he died they washed his body before they, they buried it and where the water fell down the dirt the dirt became sort of blessed essentially and so you could go and basically scoop out a bit of the dirt and give it to you mix it in water or whatever and then you get better uh, you're blessed and your body is better whatever disease you have goes away and then you give a bit of money to the church That's on the way you leave out so they're they're completely fixed on place um, and the environment and what it looks like and how it sounds is is part of what makes them a saint. It's how they, they show their sanctity. And so, for example, a lot of the, the, the miracles that Cuthbert performs are, are basically nature miracles. At one point, he's wandering the wilderness, preaching with an attendant uh, of some kind. And um, their the attendant's like, oh, what are we going to do? We don't know anybody here. We're super hungry. And Cuthbert's like, oh, of course, the Lord, Lord provide for us. And then the eagle flies down with a giant fish, like a giant salmon, and just leaves it for them. and. Uh, they're, they're about to eat it, but then Cuthbert chides the, uh, the, the companion saying, well, you should give half to the fish because, you know, it's mean, a bird because he, he brought it to us, of course. Um, he does lots of these things. Uh, my favorite Cuthbert story is he's a, he, he, he has a nightly thing that's based on um, sort of Irish tradition where he goes into the ocean, either up to his waist or up to his neck um, near Linda's farm and uh, uh, or inner farm, depending on what part of his life we're talking about, and prays all night long. Now I'll be in the water. It's freezing. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> he does this all night long and he comes out one day and um because he's been doing this uh, two uh, sea otters come out and dry his feet and breathe warmth on him then he blesses them they go off another one uh, a pregnant seal washes up and won't give birth until he blesses her um, and so says it's, it's this weird kind of focus on how this the, the sanctity of the saint essentially transforms how a human that is the saint interacts with the non-human world this is actually a subject of my, 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 my book a while back uh, that argues that saints, by virtue of doing this, are creating basically pockets of Eden where the original sort of fall, in whatever way we're interpreting this, is reversed. Not forever, usually for a few minutes or a day or so, but it's to, it's to showcase the sanctity of the saint to prove essentially how holy they are, that for those for that time, they essentially repair the breach that was made. Initially, and we have how everything should be, where the order of the universe is restored. We have God on top, we have humans doing the correct thing, and therefore nature and humanity are like in Eden, working together in concert and mutual kind of benefit.
0: Through the process of producing this analysis that you put into your paper, is there anything that changed about your understanding or your? Your, your thoughts about the, the literary work itself.
1: Yes, I, I would say what I was most surprised with was how thoroughly, um, uh, particularly the, the Latin life uh, of St. Guthlack by Felix, the, the prose life, how thoroughly he tries to essentially make it English uh, in, in a kind of vague sense, so to, to situate it in what's, what is essentially now East Anglia. Um, and so, uh, uh, for example, in the middle of the paper, I talk about a scene that I call bestial horde, just because I like the word horde, it's quite fun, uh, in which the saint is, is sitting uh, at night praying, and demons uh, rock up, uh, dressed, essentially, putting on the form of animals to kind of terrify the saint and, and break his, his progression and sanctity, his, his, his pursuit of imitating Christ, and that's part of the whole point of this this thing that the saints do imitativo Christi, they try to imitate the the life of Christ, Um, and what's interesting is that this, when I'm talking about the lifting and copying and pasting, this episode is directly copied and pasted from the original life of Saint Anthony, one of the first hermit saints uh, from from Egypt, and so in the hermit, uh, in his life, um, these saints show up as a roaring lion, a bull bellowing, um, a serpent hissing loudly, some wolves, a dappled leopard, um, tri- and, and doing some noise. Now, of course, um, many of these things did not exist, and probably still don't exist in in, in, in the British Isles or Ireland. Right? It's not there. And well, well know, one,
0: one would hope not.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I <laughs> haven't wandered. I haven't seen a leopard wandering down High Street anywhere in in, in, in London. Um, <laughs> but in in the the life of Saint Guthlach, uh it, Uh, Felix expands this whole thing, um, and uh, while he does maintain the the lion uh, for for various reasons, uh, he adds a few other things. Um, He adds uh, things like a boar, a horse, a stag, an ox, and a raven. We have a raven again, back to the ravens and crows, Um, and and those two birds are kind of not correctly identified all the time, because to be fair, they look really alike. Unless you're really into birds, um, I have friends who'd be angry at me for saying they, they look alike, but they do. They're big black things. i mean, they this right. Um, Anyway, so he he adds these these very essentially East Anglian animals, including things that are extremely familiar to any audience of the period, whether lettered or otherwise. I mean, we have things like a boar, right, and mm. wild boars, uh, and pigs would have been fair, quite familiar. Horses, very familiar animals. Stags. the belling of a stag right of course is is a very uh, sort of uh would have been a well-known sound if you lived anywhere near a forest um an ox uh, and of course the croaking of ravens so you have this kind of this deliberate deliberate attempt to create a soundscape from the life that the people in the audience would have recognized and so the saint is not being attacked by some mythical leper that they have no idea what it is unless they're you know have access to a really good uh, monastic library and've seen of seen a very poor picture It looks nothing like a leopard in a thing about a leopard um they have a, they have animals they know, and so this idea of the demons rocking up and trying to attack the, the the saint with essentially the contextual natural world I find interesting and I wasn't expecting that when I started i didn't realize how much uh effort went into doing this um in in these kind of places. I think it kind of makes sense if the point is to showcase the holiness of the saint in this place to get people to some degree excited about this and it be impactful. Um, using a kind of acustological tools, using the, the the cultural knowledge of a sound and its embeddedness mm. in that place is a much more effective means and being like, yes, and then the leopard roared and, and lion attacked and stuff. It's like cool. Means nothing to me, right? Whereas you know, in the, in the dark of the night, you hear crows crowing, or you hear you know, uh, uh, you know, a stag belling. It has an effect, a kind of uh, a, a, an experiential effect. Um, so I, I I was most surprised by how in in a genre so utterly conventional as hagiography, as saints' lives that are so dependent on looking like the one before them, mm. that they they went through these texts went through quite a bit of effort to kind of localize it. So I think that was the most surprising
0: thing. Well, in preparation of this, for this interview, and it might sound a bit weird, I went back and, and read some Shakespeare. I went back and read some uh, Marlowe and uh, Chaucer to try and get into the idea of the appeal to the masses by contextual items. So trying to understand how uh of course i mean this is this is in this is in elizabethan times but this is we're not talking about like the pre-medieval times but it appeared to me that in these uh in these poems and in these works there was kind of an appeal being made to the people that the contextually understood um contents of the story would appeal to make the lives of the saints appear more real and appear better connected to the people who were, who were hearing them. Um, do you think that this was a kind of a, how, how best to uh, describe it, that this was a kind of a sales job to, to the masses, because they were only going to get this orally. And so by creating a contextually related, contextually related story that people would just nod and just be like, yeah, sure. This, this guy's someone that I can, I can sign off on him being a saint.
1: I would definitely give a, a, a hard yes and no to that one. Uh, I, I would say yes, in the sense that um, I, can, I can definitely say that you know, there was deliberate attempts, that the, these are deliberate attempts to increase the knowledge about the saint, deliberate attempts to kind of, as we said earlier, to raise the status, usually of the, uh, of the religious community, essentially connected to the saint. Um and therefore usually this involves things like donations and people doing pilgrimages to these places, which almost inevitably involve paying money in one form or another um so there is that that aspect but i i think also we when you i i at least try to keep in mind that this was also very real right this wasn't like i think when we when when I hear you know when I've I've seen papers talk about this and they make it sound like, you know, a modern used car salesman is trying to like, you know, give you something like, oh, this, I have this item, it's so great. But of course, the car salesman doesn't believe that at all. Whereas I I would probably say the majority of the people involved in these kinds of things, you know, to some degree, although it's impossible to say, I would, I suspect, you know, would treat this as, uh, as a kind of Let's imagine ourselves being, let's say, uh, Felix himself, or or one of these uh, the unnamed poets. Things of these other texts. Um, the 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 process of being someone who writes a text. The medieval period. Again, the majority of these, or pretty much all of them, take place in a uh, something like a monastery in a scriptorium, where you have uh, these very well lettered people who can read Latin, usually fairly well, writing this down. Um, it's it's viewed in fact it's talked about many times as part of your monastic life. It's kind of it's it's the the, the creation of a manuscript book, the writing of these texts is to some degree is equally as religious as prayer. It's part of the same process. And so, um, as much as there is a kind of a, a clear kind of economic benefit to this, a, a definite attempt to um, to make it palatable, I suppose, uh, so that the audience can understand that. And there are, there are lots of uh, uh, homilies, for example, um, that we have lots of uh, Old English homilies that do just that. That they're are you know sermons that were deli- deliberately crafted in such a way to reach as much people essentially as possible in location. Um, but nonetheless, um, I, I think I, I always have to remember within the context. This is this is a spiritual act as well. The creation of these stories, the 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 shaping of the saint. Uh, For example, St. Cuthbert, we have a number of lives of St. Cuthbert. There's an anonymous one that's written by somebody in the Lindisfarne community, likely, Um, and then eventually uh, the Venerable Bede, the very important uh, Bede, is asked to write more, essentially, and so he goes back and he collects more stories, essentially. He goes around and uh, collects evidence for things that St. Cuthbert did. Um, And one, I I would imagine, at least I'd Feels true, I suppose. It's a terrible thing to say to a scholar, but it feels true that he would have, been, would have likely believed these stories to be true, would have tried to check them out, and and once he thought they were verifiable in some way or form, would have then included it in in the story in in the text. So yeah, again, I would say yes and no. There definitely is an element of um, you know they're clearly trying to talk up their saint, um, but I think it's connected to this kind of true belief that the person was a saint and that these 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 actions showcase their sanctity, and that through these mediums essentially, um, people can connect can connect to God and the blessings that flow from there, including usually physical uh, and spiritual miracles. Um, a lot of physical miracles, which are a bit more fun in some ways.
0: Again, I, I I don't ask that question uh, as someone coming from a position of sarcasm. It, it is, it's, Im, it's important to, to think about uh, what was going on at this oh, yeah. time. I'm, I'm someone who has read up and really respect the works of the various synods that went on during the Middle Ages and also up to the production of the King James Bible, and how much work that went into it, as you say, hundreds of years of informed uh, well-intentioned people trying to find out exactly what they thought were the best parts of scripture that should be put in front of people and of course uh, the 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 lives of the saints so after writing this paper so this paper was produced in 2021 i believe last year Mm
1: -hmm.
0: have you gone on to take a look at any other parts of this uh, field of study and kind of wh- where are you taking your work from here
1: this paper was kind of the first fruits of my uh, supposedly three-year um uh funded project on soundscapes uh, in the early medieval world um and due to uh, of course the coronavirus i haven't gotten to do most of the actual going to the uk and do the research bit uh, but nonetheless i've been focusing on this and um I've uh, gone on from the kind of focusing on uh, biophonic uh, soundscapes, in which usually it's basically just birds, because birds are just everywhere. Um, there's good reason for that, but uh, to looking more at kind of geophonic things. And so um, uh, the next paper that, that I, I've submitted, I'm waiting to hear back for, uh, is uh, I call Sonic Journeys on the Deep Ocean, Testing the Faithful in Old English and Anglo-Latin Literature. and. Um, the argument, basically, is that, uh, essentially, the, the idea of the deep ocean, as in, uh, as in an ocean that is both deep in-depth, in but also f- for far enough away from land that you really can't see any land, um, is used in literature specific, uh, almost always, uh, cosmologically. So where the geophonic actions of water and wind are used to create a specific location where those who are seeking God can be tested whether or not they're pilgrims on their journey to Rome or they're saints uh, going off into this kind of imagined desert to be tested. Um, And that, that of course, always goes back to um, Jesus himself going being tempted in in the desert for 40 days. It's always, goes back to, you know, Imitatio Christi. Um, And I found found this really interesting um, to think about uh, how sound is used and and as a way, a means of knowing, but also as a means of placemaking um and in in part this is 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 a way of looking at things slightly differently because um uh, in general particularly in, in western literary tradition we're kind of sort of ocular focused right everything is about how things look descriptions are about you know what it's color is, how high something is um but uh, sound is actually really important and uh, in the medieval period and the classical period as well um there's a lot of theorizing about the role of how information gets into you and, and what the difference is between the ways in which you can see something or hear something or touch something. And this, this goes back to uh, experiences in 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 the church. Um, there was lots of anxiety, for example, by Saint Augustine uh, over, over music and the role music plays because, uh, and the kind of sensory uh, parts of religious service because you have to imagine uh, you have to try and imagine you know someone who lives and works on a small farm who's you know whose house is not fairly large, usually constructed of wood and and double and all those things and, and and earth walking into a stone church with uh you know with incense flowing through the uh, through into the middle and the light streaming down occasionally from uh stained glass windows and the chants and uh, of of the monks or or the other um uh, clergy coming over uh the rude screen all these things it would have been sensually extraordinary in in many ways and so um anyway i, I i've been curious about how that sh- how they're using this deliberately in literary sense specifically for non-human sounds in this case uh this paper the next paper is looking at um the ways in which they do it in the deep ocean and mm. as far as i can tell um they again they do it specifically uh to showcase these incredibly loud stormy environments as a way of testing the person in their pursuit of god again either in pilgrimage or uh, via um, the more saintly path as it were Um, and it's fun it's 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 really loud the ocean seems to always be stormy now to be fair the north sea is not exactly the nicest place but it can be nice Um, (laughs) but it isn't in, in these things it's just full of Storm and and thunder and and uh, all the rest of it. Um, well, as
0: someone who who hails from Yorkshire and has <laughs> experienced uh, some <laughs> of the worst that the North Sea can throw at a coastline, I would I would agree with you there. Um, but uh, as you say, I mean, it, oftentimes this has been a criticism of even modern music, like the 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 overload, uh, the sensory overload. You know someone like elvis presley or, or the beatles that this was a this was a common complaint uh during the 60s that this is something that is going to corrupt and otherwise change the minds of people who would be uh god-fearing and otherwise and so it's it's a it's a common refrain even during you know times that we might consider not to be as focused on religion uh as in medieval times. Uh, just, to, just to finish today, I, I'm interested on the fact, uh, as you, you bring up uh, Imitatio or Christi, so using Latin connected to your work, uh, how how is your Latin getting on? Have you found yourself understanding it better than in the past?
1: Uh, yeah, it's okay. I, I mean, uh, uh, even, even during my PhD, my work was always in both languages, looking at Anglo-Latin and Old English. Um, and so it, it's okay. Um, I was actually the, i was originally going to be a class assistant in, an, in undergrad so it was uh the first sort of uh older language i learned and it, it worked pretty well yeah i'd say it's okay <laughs> it's doing okay um it could use some brushing up uh at the moment but otherwise it's not too bad i, I suppose
0: i only learned latin functionally so i only learned it uh for legal terms hmm. um but every now and again i'll just be Uh, having a conversation with somebody and just uh, drop in the old uh, mens rea or (laughs) actus rea and they they, and I was like what hmm huh so (laughs) so so when you when you just when you just drop the uh, imitatio christi like uh, in the in the image of christ I I I got what you were saying but um, (laughs) uh, just just in case some of our listeners uh, might not have uh, caught that one (laughs)
1: yeah it's 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 a funny thing i mean it's it's also because in in the scholarship, that's just what it's always referred to by its Latin title, and um, mm. it's just kind of a, a, a term. But yeah, no, I see what you mean. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the point, right? Is that, is that, and one of the things I've always liked about the medieval period is that it was, a, it, was a kind of, it was a multilingual and in many ways, multicultural sort of mesh of things. That's what makes it interesting. You have people who you know, go home and they speak some version of what we call old English, and then they go to work, essentially, and they have to speak some version of what we call Anglo-Latin. And then eventually you have the Norman Conquest come in, then you have other languages going in, then you have things like the Danelaw where we have Old Norse influx. And then of course we have all the kind of vaguely ill-named Celtic languages and the kind of meshing on the the borders of of, of the West and North. Um, And so it's this wonderful kind of mixture. Um, And I I like to imagine, uh, it seems to me it's fun to imagine, uh, the life of people in this period being sort of full of this kind of mix you know, where no no one's really, most people aren't ever fluent in Latin, they don't go around this, like, speaking Latin, um, unless they're pretty high up in the church or a really good scribe, but you can imagine the language trying to get peppered with phrases, you know, the monks going around, you know, joking about something and, and you know, using all these, uh, all the kind of terminology that they often still use, <laughs> to be honest, um, and I, I really like that. I kind of, I, I think it's, it's a, it, it's a reminder to me that it was a it was a real world in in constant change and flux real people real lives um and and the language reflects that kind of continued give and take and growth and um yeah i find it interesting i mean you even have um uh texts that try to you know that are trying to define something and and they'll be saying latin and then they'll be like oh it means this in old english just just in case you're wondering <laughs> um or uh one one way in which you can see how these communities grapple with this is we have text that are um, are Latin, and then uh, someone has gone along and done interlinear glosses between the lines in Old English, like, okay, this means this, and 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 this uh, so that someone else can read it. And it's really, um, or they even have kind of, uh, uh, for Felix's life of St. Guthlac, it's, it's a fairly difficult text. He makes up lots of Latin words, which is also interesting. He, he does lots of neologisms that just don't exist anywhere else. He just said, <laughs> yeah, this Latin word makes sense. Um, and it apparently was confusing enough that it, that sometimes there'll be like you know a little explanatory note saying I'm pretty sure Felix meant this in in the margin of a, of a manuscript, and so it's it's just this wonderful kind of living tradition to to see, I suppose.
0: Well, oh, you're getting you're going to get me off on a on a on a tangent here, but I do appreciate the fact that even when people were not particularly able to read or write in the past, they were probably more likely to be multilingual than we are today. Mm -hmm. They would have to have been at least somewhat conversant in their local language and the language of the church. And possibly even, as you say, uh, in relation, if they were were traders, if they were people who traveled, uh, they would have to be conversant in Danelaw languages as well. And I would very much like to continue this conversation with you in the future about the paper and the research that you've been speaking about that you're working on. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank
1: you for having me, it was fun.
0: If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics educators and online content producers get in contact with each other our email address is lostincitations@gmail.com. at gmail.com we also have facebook and linkedin pages please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts it helps us reach more potential listeners but probably the most helpful thing you can do is if you like our content recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do thank you very much